Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast defining the experience of being a young adult with cancer. Each episode, we explore issues impacting young adults in and after treatment. Like what you hear? Have something to add? Come join us for next month's recording, the third Tuesday at 6 p.m. So my name is Brady Lucas. I was diagnosed with chemoplastic leukemia in 2005, had a bone marrow transplant after a relapse in 2010. So my transplant date was February 2nd of 2011, just about 10 years ago, uh, just over 10 years ago. Hi, my name is Diana Bastila. I'm 22. I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I had my auto bone marrow transplant last year of uh, May. It started in May. It ended on June. My name is Ryan Dellinger. Um, I'm 19 years old, and I was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, B-cell, ALL, in June of 2018. And um, I started with regular chemotherapy and moved to CAR T-cell therapy after completing two phases of chemo because it wasn't super successful. And then from that point, after CAR-T, that's when I uh, went and got a transplant in August of 2019. I'm Sarah Merrill. I am one of the social workers that works with our pediatric hematology oncology. I work with our long-term survivorship program, as well as the individuals that get bone marrow transplants that are not oncology related. So any of the congenital neutropenias, aplastic anemias, anything that's not oncology related. And hi, I'm Terry Shapiro. I am the nurse practitioner with the Pediatric Stem Cell Transplant Program at Penn State Hershey. I, um, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I have been doing uh, bone marrow and stem cell transplantation since the early 80s. I took care of my first ever stem cell transplant patient in 1982, and I have been involved in taking care of both adults and pediatric patients undergoing stem cell transplant at four different locations, four different uh, academic uh, institutions. So I've been asked to actually describe what a bone marrow or stem cell transplant is and what it's used for and kind of the science behind it. So we consider uh, bone marrow and stem cell transplantation to be a very aggressive form of therapy. Patients who either have malignancies uh, like leukemia, like a couple of our folks, or lymphoma. Uh, but also, like Sarah said, there are a good number of non-malignant diseases that are cured by stem cell transplantation. No matter whether it's malignant or non-malignant, it is a very aggressive therapy to go through. And I'm sure our panelists can actually <laughs> reinforce that. We call it boot camp. It's a very difficult thing to go through because it uses very high dosages, uh, more than conventional doses used for most malignancies of chemotherapy and sometimes total body irradiation in an attempt to cure the patient. So stem cell transplant is never considered palliative. It is always curative. So no matter what disease indication, it is considered a curative therapy. It's a long process. It's generally split into three phases, the pre-transplant phase, which is the high-dose chemotherapy plus or minus total body irradiation. That's called the transplant conditioning or prep regimen. 
followed by the day of transplant, which is what we consider day zero, followed by the early transplant period of time. And during this period of time, most patients are going to be in the hospital for the pre-transplant phase and then the early four to six week uh, phase. When I first started in transplant, the average day of stay was about 76 days and now it's about 35 days. But still, that's a very long 35 days. And those first few weeks are characterized by feeling like crap, right, guys? Uh, You feel like you've been hit by a truck. Uh, You just finished these mega doses of chemo and or radiation therapy. So you have no blood counts. Early on, you're getting lots of transfusions. You're not really able to eat or drink. There are liver problems, kidney problems, all the things that we consider common problems that are terrifying to most average children and young adults. But for transplant, it's par for the course. Then about what I call it. So the cells are infused on what's called day zero. And really the real magic happens when those cells that are infused via into the bloodstream in about a two to three week period of time find where they're supposed to go by migration, cellular migration, and land in the now empty marrow spaces and start making healthy new blood cells. Then the patients in the hospital till really, if you've had like a donor transplant or an auto transplant, it's usually 21 to 30 days afterwards. But then you're not out of the woods yet because there's still a lot of things that can happen, uh, mostly infections. There's still some organ damage and repair that are going on. And you really don't start feeling somewhat human for three to six months post-transplant. Patients who have had donor transplants have to stick around their transplant center uh, until around day 100 and then are still not able to return to a normal life because you're still considered immune suppressed for another six to 12 months. So it's a very intense process. And again, it's one of the more difficult medical procedure, so to speak, that patients, no matter what your condition, undergo. We were joined um, during that explanation by Janessa. Welcome. Um, Janessa, would you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of who you are and when um, your bone marrow transplant was and what for? Sure. My name is Janessa Weaver and I'm 20 years old. I had a bone marrow transplant in July of 2019 for a bleeding disorder called gray gray platelet syndrome. It's a pretty rare disorder. Um, There's something missing in my platelets. So clot, I don't clot. I used to not clot as well. So we were able to do a a bone marrow transplant, which they use my brother's cells. And now my platelets can work normally and I don't have any problems with clotting. So now, so it's pretty great. (laughs) Thanks. Perfect. Um, introduction to NASA, nice, concise, and also very descriptive. So Terry just finished giving like our official explanation of what a bone marrow transplant is. But I'm curious from each of you, um, what were the, what was it the actual experience like? Terry described it as getting hit by a Mack truck. Do you agree with that? How did you describe it? Tell us what it was like from the inside out. I would say overall, it was like, basically the worst possible experience I could ever think of. It was kind of like, it was one of those things where I knew I had to do it, or at least it was like, at least in, with my treatment, um, 
I had a just a better future like chance of not relapsing if I did do a bone marrow transplant. So it was it was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, and I think it will be. But also, it's kind of it's almost like looking back on it, it's almost like a nightmare because I was so like heavily drugged up because I was in a lot of pain. I was like on the max possible dose of morphine without like knocking you out. And they have to keep you conscious to make sure like you're still able to breathe and, you know, all that stuff. And even though I was on the max dose of morphine, I still had a lot of pain. So it was it was just really it's a weird time. Like if looking back at it, and like I said, it, it really resembles like somewhat of a nightmare. But by the same token, you know, I know that like it was something that had to be done and uh, it was what saved my life ultimately. Trying to think of words to say because I think there were many emotions felt during the entire process. I mean, going from a relapse cancer where the option necessarily was to do a transplant or, for lack of better terms, destroy my body more than it originally was from chemotherapy or other regimens. But I think it was also kind of a light at the end of the tunnel looking towards the future because having I mean, I'm a very spiritual person, and I think, you know, just the whole idea that my little brother was a match for a Burmary transplant, not just a match, but a perfect match. Um, and, I, and you go back to thinking, the only reason you need that is in this circumstance. So I almost feel like it was meant to happen for what, what reason. But I am also glad that if it had to happen to someone, I'm glad it was me. Um, but then I guess the, to kind of go for Ryan, as far as the whole process of no, being highly medicated and just not really remembering much of the first kind of pre-transplant phase, those very heavy chemotherapy days before the day zero. But I, I have to laugh because the the story behind the day of my transplant, I remember Terry and then the other oncologist, they had a sleepover the night before because there was a huge ice storm and they weren't sure if they were going to be able to get from on top of the hill down um, to the medical center the next day to harvest my younger brother's bone marrow cells at 6 a.m. in the OR on, you know, February 2nd. So I just have to laugh at, you know, just thinking about the community feel that it truly was. I mean, it took my little brother, my family, my parents, Terry, the oncologist, you know, and all the other staff. And I think um, if I have to th- say one thing about bone marrow transplant is it really shows the community power and the power of the entire hospital. I'm grateful to receive, you know, the support that I did through everything. And I think although there was a lot of pain, there was a lot of light that came from it as far as having the care team at Hershey. Yeah, I was actually in pain before I even got the treatment because for me, it was an auto bone marrow transplant, which means they had to put a catheter in me in order to take out the bone marrow cells out so I had like a catheter sticking out of my chest and it had to be fresh because it was an open so it was kind of like an open wound so even before going into the hospital I was like super uncomfortable because I had another catheter in me and it was like super painful I remember like taking several painkillers before the treatment just because of how painful it was I couldn't sleep Also, the kind of upsetting part for me is it happened during the pandemic. So I wasn't 
I wasn't allowed to have even my family members with me. So I went through the whole thing alone. So for me, it was kind of the scariest moments of my life because it's like you're going through this thing that's super painful and I didn't have anybody to be there with me. My my family kept calling me a lot, but it was kind of difficult because it's not the same. My mom, whenever she would go with the, with me with the treatment, she would hug me or give me hope or things like So it was scary. If I remember it, it was probably the scariest thing I've ever gone through. And it mainly because I was alone through all of it. I, I can honestly say I did cry a bit. I was crying to a nurse that time because I was in so much pain and I just couldn't take it anymore. If you would recommend something like that, I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, if you could review it, I would review it zero out of zero. So if you had a chance to schedule your bone marrow transplant, make sure that it is not at the start of a pandemic. So maybe that's helpful information for everybody to know. Diana was transplanted on our adult side. Um, and during the first initial phases of the pandemic, we weren't able to have, they weren't able to have um, caregivers with them while in the pediatric side, they were. So that's a pretty big difference. And I think Diana, you spoke well to what that was like. And then Ryan, I believe, had his bone transplant at CHOP. And Brady, you had yours in the children's side at Hershey. And Janessa, what was your bone marrow transplant like and where was it? So mine was at Hershey as well in the children's side. I felt like I my bone marrow transplant wasn't for a cancer, wasn't for cancer, it was for something different. So chemotherapy in general was all new to me. So I felt very much like, yes, it, it felt like a truck had hit me because I hadn't been under that many meds and stuff ever before. So yeah, it was pretty hard that first week, I remember. And I'm so thankful that my mom was able to be with me. It was before the pandemic as well. Yeah, I was very blessed to have my mom and parents and family was able to be in with me. So you guys have all described something that was not very easy. I'm curious for a listener who is maybe preparing for a bone marrow transplant. Like our goal is, of course, not to submerge them in fear, but to provide like helpful information that will help them understand what it's like. Kind of from that standpoint, what are some tips or tricks that you might give to somebody that's maybe anticipating a bone marrow transplant? I would definitely say the biggest thing for me was like, I was really worried at first because like when they, when they do the initial like assessment and stuff, they have to go through with you every single possible side effect, like from this tiniest thing till to like the worst possible thing that could happen to you. So I think that kind of like clouded my thoughts when I first went into it. And I think like, although that stuff is scary, you should just like realize that they're just telling you this because they have to tell you that like all the possibilities and the more wild, like really bad, like effects are super, super low percentages. And it may be like a handful of people that this has ever happened to. Um, the other thing I would say is definitely trust in your doctors and nurses. I would say that, you know, you just have to get to the point where you just leave it in their hands because they're the ones who um, are educated and know what they're doing and stuff. 
just find stuff to like while you're in transplant find stuff that you can do to kind of try your best to get your mind off of it um i know for a while when i was in transplant i was playing video games with my friends you know i brought my xbox and everything hooked it up to the tv and um yeah that that was a good distraction for me um and also even like facetiming friends and stuff would help out too or if there's some specific show that you're really into just watching that show a bunch on tv or whatever just something to get your mind off of it you know and something that you enjoy while you're in there yeah i would agree with that um just finding something to get your mind off of it and um also one of my biggest recommendations is just to take it one day at a time and not try to think about oh this could i could be in quarantine for another six to nine months just trying to overcome each day at a time and not looking at yeah you're looking forward to the end but just taking it slowly and not becoming overwhelmed by it. And also I am a Christian. So just trusting in Jesus Christ is really what got me through the most too. His peace is what really kept me going through the hardest times because I knew that he gave me a hope that only he can give. And also just trusting the doctors as well. Like I had an amazing team there that I knew that they had my best in mind and that they would do everything they could to make it work. I say that try to stay as comfortable as possible. For me, I kind of hate the hospital smell, the chemicals, everything. I don't know if other people are as sensitive, but I'm super sensitive to smells. And whenever I was going uh, through treatment, the smells would like really penetrate with me. So I hated it. It would just make me more sick. So I actually took like my um, airwick with me. And would have it in the bathroom, in the room, just because it would kind of help me a little bit more to get through the day. I also remember taking a bunch of things like pillows and blankets, just because sometimes you get extra cold and I just wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to feel a little bit more like home. So I did take a bunch of stuff. I remember my mom making fun of me and saying, are you planning to move to the hospital? And I was like, pretty much. But um, it does help you a lot reading. Um, I enjoy a lot of poetry. So sometimes reading can be exhausting, but poetry, which is something small and it helps you a bit. It inspires you. I feel like it pushes you a bit. So that's something else that helps. I think the underlying theme here, and we tell this to everyone coming in, is that you need to make the space your own and feel like it is your space. You know, you're going to be in there for four to six weeks during the early part and do whatever you can to make the space to own it. It's your space. And we do respect it. It may not feel like it at times, but we, the team really does try to respect that it's your space. And Sarah, as you listen to the, them share their stories, what questions come to your mind as someone who has walked beside several um, transplants? Yeah. I mean, I think the one, the one kind of thing that I've, I've, heard other, especially adolescents getting closer to some young adults that I've worked with is after you leave the hospital. So you've spent all this time and you've kind of become like the hospital becomes part of your family. And I'm sure for you, Diana, without being able to have your family there, they really were the nurses were your family (laughs) during that time. The kind of struggle of adjusting to leaving. So as much of, of how difficult it is when you're in the hospital and kind of the nightmare that it can feel like sometimes that then once you get to the place of leaving, a lot of individuals have said that that's really hard. Um, we've seen some more kind of trauma responses start to pop up after that. 
feeling more depressed, more anxious. Can you guys talk about that and kind of what helped you get through that? What were the the coping skills that you used to to get through that transition? For me, I would I would definitely say that after my transplant, like a little bit of like depression, just feeling down a lot of days. I was actually, since I did my transplant at CHOP, I was staying at the Ronald McDonald house there for a while. I was definitely relieved to get into a slightly better room there than the hospital, or bigger, I should say, Um, not necessarily better, but definitely bigger. And in order to kind of like boost my spirits, I would actually like just try to get outside, get a little bit of fresh air, go on walks as much as I could. You know, some days I would only do, you know, circle two blocks and other days I could do like three or four and slowly I would work my way up or like walk faster. Definitely getting some fresh air, uh, especially because it was like towards the end of the summer, just beginning to go to fall. It was a nice time for the weather. So that really helped me, I feel like, and the sunlight and everything. But there's definitely some days too, where you just have to give yourself some grace that like you're going to have some ups and downs. And you're going to have days that you don't feel like getting out of bed and, and that's all right. You know, you have to listen to what your body's telling you, but I, I think you should definitely take uh, advantage of the good days. I think for me, the hardest part was definitely the social aspect, not being with friends, not being with the family members necessarily all the time. And the Act. I wanted that out of my skin as quick as possible, just so I could go play golf. So I think that was one of the things that really pushed me through day zero to day 100 was when can I get outside and get back on the golf course? When can I do this with my friends? You know, when can I do this and that? And it's definitely not easy, as Ryan said. I think it emotionally you struggle a lot. And I would say the emotional stress is still there years later. Um, being said, planning ahead is very difficult. When you're looking day by day from zero to day one, day two, day three. And I think the whole aspect of looking more than 100 days ahead, maybe that's a metaphor in a way. But I think that's often difficult for any individual that's gone through a bone a transplant just because they're dealing with you know the unexpected. And I think for me too, I received a donor lymphocyte infusion a couple, probably, I guess, about a month in because my transplant wasn't grafting fully. So I think that added a whole new element of, well, when is it going to happen? You know, is there going to be another one? What are you going to need to do next? And although there was fear, I think there was also, like we, like I continue to say, I think laughter really brings people together through it. Um, finding moments that wouldn't be funny to the outside person and maybe even dark humor. We've talked about that before, but to someone that's undergone a transplant, I think it's a funny way to kind of just cope with everything. Yeah, I would say for those transitioning days, finding stuff to um, to do, um, going outside, that was really nice for me as well as during the summer. So I loved trying to do an evening walk, just getting some fresh air. And the days that are your good days, sometimes it was still easy just to be lazy anyway. But like um, Ryan had said, to just take advantage of those days and do something because there are going to be days that you're going to feel a lot worse and trying to make the most of the good days? I think for me, it was a little bit more different because I was pretty much isolated the whole time. So then I got out and it was like, okay, I'm back to the world. 
but I wasn't even really back to the world either because I couldn't even go. I mean, I still don't even go outside much because of the pandemic. So it's more like a lot of things change. I feel like I changed a lot and I was just like, I'm always still really cautious about like who I'm around and things like that. Just because for me, it's been more recent. So I just try to take it a step at a time, just slowly doing things. I feel like another thing you struggle a lot to is your body changes a lot. I felt like when uh, I finished the transplant, I was like, wow, this is like, it's the energy you feel in your body. It's not the same. So it's trying to slowly adjust to the energy you have. Yeah, I, I definitely had like the longer period of time too, where like after transplant, I felt you know, those, those low energy days and high energy days. I also think I experienced, I don't know if anyone else did, but I forget the exact terminology for it, but it was like, it's basically like, uh, after effects of radiation where you feel really like there's like a, a week and a half or two weeks that you just feel like totally like you can't do anything. And it just like took everything out of me. So that's called somnolent syndrome. And it is. Patients feel like you need to sleep 24-7 and you're in a fog and you just have chronic severe fatigue and the need to sleep. Only about 10% of patients who get total body radiation will experience that. It is a real thing. Somnolent syndrome is a really severe case of that. And it happens predictably in a certain window after total body radiation. But there have been a number of studies looking at fatigue post-transplant. A majority of patients will still feel fatigued at that 12-month period of time. I think you have to allow yourself to, you know, just baby steps. There's been a number of um, exercise physiologists who kind of studied this phenomenon. And getting out, walking, you know, if you expend more energy, you're going to have more energy, but you have to allow yourself to not be back to where you were for a long period of time. That's normal. And Shelly, is it okay if I talk about another post-transplant thing that just in this discussion with everyone um, made me uh, think of? So patients who, especially those who undergo donor transplants and especially the higher, highest risk, the matched unrelated donor transplants, about 90% of those patients will need to get readmitted for one thing or another post-transplant. Because it's such a high-risk procedure, transplant programs, no matter where you're transplanted, are very, very, very careful about monitoring for complications, infections, and side effects. So we tell patients before they leave the hospital for that first time, don't beat up yourself if you need to be readmitted because we have to be very, very careful. But it is a huge letdown. I mean, universally, patients are so upset when you feel like the light is toward the end of the tunnel. You've just been in the hospital four to six weeks. You're getting out, whether you're going to local patient housing, back to your home, you're starting to take little walks and boom, some mild infection or you have a fever or you have, you know, other complications. We have a very low threshold for putting you in the hospital so we can watch you much more carefully. But it is a big letdown when you have to be readmitted. And I don't know if any of the panelists want to speak to that. I mean, I think I was readmitted two or three times. And the first time was with graft-versus-host disease in June of 2011. So that would have been, I guess, four months after 
originally. And for those who don't know what graft-versus-host disease is, Terry can explain a little bit more of the scientific background. But essentially what it is, is your body usually has to accept the organ. But in this case, your organ has to accept the body. So when the bone marrow registers in your body that it's not supposed to be there, it fights against your immune system um, to, to mount an immune response. And, and what was happening in my body is it was doing that, which is a great thing if you're getting some, but if you get full blown, it often attacks the organs or areas of your body that are weaker. So to give you an idea, my liver AST and ALTs were in the 600s when normal or low 40s to, you know, zeros. Um, so it was very, very high and very dangerous and then kind of amounts a different immune response. But yeah, I, I got readmitted two years after transplant. And I can remember this readmittance to the day because I was so mad at Terry and that she wouldn't let me go home. And it was for RSV, which is just a common cold to any any normal person. And I remember I was on ribovirin for nine days straight in the hospital. And the severity of it really was, you know, it's life or death. Like it's, it wasn't a, a normal thing that anybody could just get through. But for my immune system and even being two years out of transplant, it was a very serious thing. So I think for any of those, you know, any of you three, as well as any of the other people listening to this, don't be afraid of if they're readmitting into the hospital. It's in the best of interest to yourself, even if at the time you may be very upset um, because I was not a happy camper. And for those who know me, um, you know, that was... One of the only moments I think in my life that I just broke down and cried to Terry because I just wanted to be home and I wanted to be with my friends. And, you know, for her, I'm sure it was very difficult and her as well to make me stay there. But I, I definitely remember that moment. And I think to wrap it all around is the doctors and nurses are, are readmitting you for a reason. They're not doing it just to readmit you. Well, maybe all of you could weigh in, Terry and the adults, Sarah. So you've described um, from each of your perspectives something that is extremely difficult physically, mentally, emotionally. As you kind of acclimate to life after transplant, how did you navigate from kind of this as a big stressor in your life to like integrating it and moving forward? We've touched on it a little bit, but I'm interested in hearing kind of what are the baby steps you've taken to do that and um, what you guys are all different time periods out. So what does it look like at different time markers? And then for Terry, you've seen this over lots and lots of years. What, what do you see? So I'll let that question sit with everybody. So I'd say for me, there was probably, I would say point in time where it was probably around three months post-transplant at least three months, maybe four actually, where I was kind of like up and down as far as energy levels and stuff like that. And I was just overall struggling, like, you know, just kind of down, uh, like mentally as well. Luckily I was like recovering well, you know, it was just, it was hard to get used to like, like my energy levels and it was also hard to get used to not having like hardly any muscle and trying to like regrow some of my muscle slowly and slowly but i'd say like after that like four to five month period i kind of got a little ignorant that like i just wanted to do everything 
And, you know, my doctors were obviously totally against that and made me aware of, you know, the consequences of my actions could be paid for if I wasn't careful. So, but like I, I was at that point, I feel like I was just like so sick of like everything, like just being in treatment in general for two years, like this dragging out so far because like I had a point in time, like when I tried CAR T that I feel I, I felt totally fine after CAR T and, you know, I was like totally back to normal. And then I went straight back to transplant, you know, so it was a lot of back and forth throughout my treatment. So I was just like, so sick and tired of it that like, I kind of became ignorant to it the whole thing in general, um, even though like you still have to follow precautions, you know, of like what you can and can't do for a while after transplant. Um, but I'd say like I started to feel more normal at around like seven, eight months is probably when I started to feel more normal. So yeah. And then I ended up getting a job around that time and then COVID hit. So it was like, it was just, crazy you know because then it was back to being stuck at home again so it was a frustrating experience but like I felt like I was very fortunate that I never had to get readmitted I thank god that I my recovery was very smooth and I was lucky for that I think I've kind of gone through various phases I mean the the initial I guess two and a half years during the relapse and then the transplant and then just back before I was normal. And I will leave this caveat as everybody's different during transplant. So don't compare yourself to other people's circumstances. It often happens that you do. And I know it can be a sign of hope, but it can also be a downfall sometimes. So that was one of the things I think I did particularly well at was kind of the create my situation as an individual situation, not a situation for a collective whole. But I will say, I think it's moved from the recovery period to the period of essentially, I guess, like more freedom, more lax, I guess, for a lack of better terms, where I enjoyed myself, <laughs> definitely, you know, having fun, but also also being careful. And now I think it's at the point too, within that was the turn to help others um, within the situation was, you know, a way for me to cope with it was to recruit other people that may not have matches for bone marrow transplants or need a stem cell transplant and don't get the chance to do that. So I think I got really involved with helping the other people. And that was a way of coping with, from my perspective. For me, it's been more recent, which feels like it's going to be a year in May, but it still feels so fresh for me. So I feel that I'm still kind of adjusting to the whole, I'm done with it. It was like I was prepared for the transplant. And I was, to be honest, I've never been a person that can stay still. So even when I was in the hospital, I couldn't stay still. Like I try to keep moving. I couldn't go out. I couldn't, because of the pandemic, I couldn't go out anywhere. So I would be in my four walls, just moving around, trying to uh, stay active, reading, standing up, which sounds like it's not a lot. But when you're doing a transplant, it is a lot because you get exhausted so fast. I mean, that kind of helped me get out of the hospital sooner than I was supposed to be in there. But I think it was also kind of a bad thing because I was 
so excited when I was done with my transplant that I wanted to do a lot of things and I couldn't because of the pandemic and also because your body doesn't allow it. So I ended up like exhausting myself a few times until I realized I'm like, if I keep doing this, which my mom also told me, she's like, if you keep doing this, you're going to end up back in the hospital. And she's like, do you want that? And I'm like, I don't want to go back to the hospital again. So right now I feel like I'm adjusting to just trying to take things slow. Um, what I do most of the time is just, um, I enjoy music a lot. So I'll listen to music often. I'll read poetry. I'll like to uh, listen to a lot of videos that just kind of like help me with my mood and things like that. So inspirational videos, which I think help a lot too. So I don't know. I'm still kind of working my way through um, life after a transplant. I feel like you're in shock for the longest time. And I was like, so what's next? And I wasn't sure what was next. So I'm still kind of like taking it slow. So for me, I think the thing I was most unprepared for is how weak I actually was. I was not expecting that I would not have energy to even I my bedrooms in the basement I didn't even have I wasn't strong enough to even go down to my bedroom so just slowly building my strength up but then it it happened pretty quick probably by three or four months out I was I felt like I had almost all my energy back but then if I would try to do some some for active sport or something I realized it actually wasn't like it it took a while till I felt like I was back to normal probably close to a year maybe till I could fully like play any sport and stuff that I wanted to so now I'm almost two years out so I feel like I am back to it feels like I'm back to normal sometimes I it's almost easy to forget that I actually that was not that long ago so I feel like I am yeah pretty close back to normal there's still those lingering effects and stuff but yeah so I think all of you guys are my heroes and if I ever need any reinforcement of why I've done this for so long it's like people like young adults like you and people ask me all the time how I can do what I do but here you go just hearing it from you um, is very reinforcing I think you know there are late effects and I have the good fortune of managing patients early in the hospital and then being able to follow them as an outpatient and then patients like you know Janessa and Brady I'm seeing now once a year but there are a number of late effects that we have to monitor for. And I think sometimes um, it can they can be very uh, disappointing and upsetting. But we have we have a lot of support staff, um, a lot of specialist referrals. And when I look at the late effects we were dealing with just 15, 20 years ago, you know, we've become so much better at doing the transplant and tailoring what therapy we give to patients to try to minimize those late effects, but they still happen. And I think Sarah can probably speak to, Sarah also has the good fortune of being the social worker for the uh, late effects or long-term follow-up clinic as part of our uh, general HEMONC program. Yeah. I mean, I think we have our clinic because we want to recognize and appreciate that what you've gone through is a trauma. You know, it's a trauma that was needed to help you, uh, but it was a trauma nonetheless to both your your body and your your physical and mental well-being. And so, you know, from a physical standpoint, the the late effects, we want to stay on top of that. We want to be able to offer 
the support you need to continue to monitor how you're doing, um, given the treatments that you've received, whether that's bone marrow treatments or whatever that may be, you know, what kind of things could pop up because of that, because of the chemotherapy, because of the radiation. And so that's kind of why it exists from that standpoint, but also from a mental health standpoint, um, like you've all talked about today. I mean, it's a different journey for everyone, but I think just hearing you guys talk has allowed, you know, for the listeners that are going through a bone marrow transplant to feel like they're not alone. And that's part of why we have the long-term follow-up clinic as well is to say like, look, there's others who have gone through this. How can we connect you? How can you see that, you know, in your darkest moments, you weren't going crazy, (laughs) that it is really hard. It is a nightmare, like you described it. So how can we support you? How can we connect you with other individuals who have walked this journey and kind of can continue to walk with you? So, I mean, kudos to all of you. Like, like Terry said, this is an awesome way to find meaning out of such a hard time in your life, you know, of what you went through. You're, you're providing that kind of light for the individuals who are going to listen to this, which is awesome. Well, I think for the listeners to it, the four of you guys have provide such a variety of what transplants are like for malignancies, non-malignancies. Diana had an autologous transplant. And I tell patients this all the time. Nobody gets off easy when you have to go through something like this. And it, it, you have to allow yourself to embrace how hard it is and to give yourself the leeway to not always feel like, oh, I have to be strong. I can't, you know, I, I can't cry. I can't scream. I can't ask for morphine. I can't, you have to, you know, we've got you, <laughs> you know, we are your safety net, but you really have to allow yourself to to recognize that it is the hardest thing, like Ryan said, that you will probably experience in your life. Thanks for listening to Life on Pause. Ideas or suggestions for future episodes? Feel free to share them with us. Join us for the next recording on the third Tuesday of the month. Until Until next time. time.